0: We're going to resume our, our study in the book of Mark. And um, I feel like this is a pretty important message. Um, it's, it comes from Mark chapter 8. I actually titled the message, uh, Rebuking Jesus, um, which is kind of a shocking title. I hope you're shocked by that. I hope that's a little bit jarring to you, rebuking Jesus. Um, but surprisingly enough, that is exactly what happens Uh, in this passage, is that uh, the disciples, Peter specifically, actually rebukes Jesus because Jesus' thoughts are not Peter's thoughts. Jesus' ways are not Peter's ways. And when Peter recognizes the dissonance there, he thinks, well, I should correct Jesus. And so this is a passage about rebuking Jesus because his ways are not our ways. Um. Let me start with this. Have you ever had one of those moments where you, you have kind of an epiphany that, uh, that you don't, don't know as much as you think you do or you thought you did? Have you ever had one of those moments? If you haven't, you've just got a bunch of blind spots. I've had some, some very significant moments like this. I've also had pretty regular ones. Uh, I, one significant one was when I, I graduated from uh, my inductive Bible program. Bible School. It was a one-year intensive in Scripture in which we were immersed in Scripture. It wasn't. We weren't studying Scripture along with seven other subjects or six other subjects. The, our whole curriculum was Scripture for a year, and so most of us as students were immersed sixty to seventy hours per week in Scripture, and we we basically we we went through each book of the Bible and we studied each book. In its own and in the context of the rest of scripture. And we effectively, we, we each wrote our own mini commentary, like a kind of a preliminary commentary on that book. And uh, my expectation before I signed up for the school was that I would come out of the school just, I mean, really knowing scripture. I mean, how could 60 to 70 hours a week immersed in scripture? I mean, I was going to know it. And I got to the end and I realized that I had learned a lot. Like, considering the starting place, I had learned a lot. And I realized I had so far to go that I had just scratched the surface of understanding and applying Scripture. And uh, it, was, it was a little bit, well, I'll take out the filter. It was, it was discouraging, but it also made me realize I've got a whole lifetime in front of me to keep learning. That the, 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 the year that we had spent together in studying Scripture was just a, a framework we get to build the rest of our lives on. I had a friend who had a similar epiphany. He was stepping into a brand new uh, role in his vocation, and he, it was a an unexpected um, promotion, let's say, an unexpected promotion in which he suddenly found himself thrust into the lead point in his uh, in his organization, and uh, and it wasn't expected, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't quite ready for it, but he said yes to it. And when I met with him and said, "So, how's it going? Like, what are you thinking? What are you learning?" He said. I'm just realizing that I don't even know what I don't know. I don't even know what I don't know. And you may have had moments like that based on your response when I asked that question. I I think several of you have probably had that sort of experience. But here's the thing, that awareness or epiphany, it can be humbling. It can even be discouraging. But if, if embraced, and here's the big if, if we embrace that moment, It opens the door to greater learning, to greater development, being shaped. It opens up our lives to a lifelong of learning. And so in today's passage, Jesus' disciples, they have uh, an aha. This Peter specifically has an epiphany. He has an aha moment about Jesus. Peter and the other 12, they've been with Jesus for the, the, basically for every waking moment of the last two years or so. They're always with Jesus. And yet in this moment, they, it all comes to this crescendo and they have this aha. And it's incredibly exciting. It's the moment that the book of Mark has been, has been building towards. But then it's followed by a moment of, of whiplash, as Pastor Mike calls it in our devotions this week. There's a moment of whiplash in which Peter realizes that as much as they've learned about Jesus and as much as they've come to this critical moment of recognition of who he is, that they have so much about him and what it means to follow him wrong. That's the whiplash, is that they have an epiphany about who he is and they realize that their understanding of him and what it means to follow him is wrong. Let's review a little bit about where we're coming from. Uh, Here's what has been happening over the last few weeks. Uh, Following a second miraculous feeding, this was in Mark, the, the first part of Mark 8. Uh, the disciples have another panicked moment in which they forget to bring food for their trip across the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was a kind of a comical moment in many ways because they've participated in both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. We looked at both of those miracles and how the miracle actually happened in their hand. And the irony is they find themselves uh, on this boat uh, heading from uh, across the Sea of Galilee from uh, like Magdala to Bethsaida. And they realize they've only got one, roll, one biscuit, one croissant in the boat, and they panic because they're all going to die. We're all going to die. We don't have any bread. They've just participated in these miraculous feedings. So they have this moment of panic, and then Jesus begins to pepper them with nine questions. They're mostly rhetorical questions, but they're all about their current understanding of him and his mission. So this is in Mark 8. Here's the, here's the nine questions. And I just listed them out like this a few weeks ago so that we can experience the weight of Jesus asking all these questions in a row. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And I think the pronoun is probably emphasized in these questions. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Do you not yet understand? And Mark leaves those questions just hanging over the disciples as they, as they make their way from, from Magdala to Bethsaida across the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're rowing. And those questions are just kind of left hanging in the air as they, as they make their way. And there's more questions. There's actually two more questions that are part of this whole series of questions. But before Jesus gets to the last two, there's this pause. There's like this interlude. And, there's, and, it's, and it happens like this. So uh, the interlude, Mark tells us that they arrive at the shore. The disciples arrive at the shore. And the locals from Bethsaida, they bring Jesus a, a blind man and ask Jesus to lay his hand on. Him. And Jesus does, in fact, do that. He heals the blind man. He he gives him his sight. He uses a little bit of spit. We don't know if he made mud or if he did this in his eyes, gave him a wet willy of the eyes. But he asks him, he says, can you see? And the guy says, well, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. And so then Jesus tries it again. More spit. And he says, now what do you see? And he says, now I can see clearly. I have to think that that was a shocking moment for the disciples, that that was a jarring moment for them. I, I, I think, uh, you know, first this man can only see, he can see, but it's blurry. But Jesus like has never done this before. Jesus has never not gotten it right the first try. This is the, the only two-stage miracle we have in all of Jesus' ministry. There's never been a moment where Jesus does it and it's kind of there, and so he has to try a little bit harder, pray a little bit more, add a little more spit. Like this is the only time this happens. And so I have to think the disciples were stunned by this two-stage healing, wondering, oh gosh, what, what just happened? And here's what all the commentators agree on: that that this was actually an enacted parable, that Jesus chose to do this, this healing in this way. He really did heal this blind man. The blind man really did receive his sight, but Jesus was doing something not just for him, but for the 12 that were watching the spectators. And here's what the commentators agree on is that this was what we would call an enacted parable, where Jesus is doing something to teach them something. Because like this man, they too are seeing not quite clearly. They've begun to see, but for them, Jesus is blurry. He's, he's like a tree walking. And they need a second touch. Jesus continues the, the questioning of his disciples. He, so, so he has the nine questions, this pause with this little interlude, and then he resumes the questioning. Here's the next question Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. I'm going to pause right there for just a second. Let's talk about where they are and where they're heading. They're leaving Bethsaida. They're, they're heading north to, to what was called Caesarea Philippi. This is the only time that we see Jesus and the disciples heading this far north into Caesarea Philippi. It's about a 25-mile hike. Here's the map. And if you look on this map, you can see that they start uh, there at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're following that red dotted line. They just stayed on the dotted line, I'm sure. Uh, heading to Caesarea Philippi. And here's the thing. So here's, let me show you, with you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. This is an ancient pagan city. It is thousands and thousands of years old, even at that point. Okay, this is first century. At that point, it's an ancient city already. It had been known as a center for the worship of the idol Baal. In fact, archeologists today, modern archeologists have, have been to this area and found at least 14 temples, like ruins of temples to Baal. Okay, so that was historically where the, the, the history of the, of the place. Um, but in the Greek era, which preceded the Roman era, but in the Greek era, it had become more well-known as a center for worship of the Greek god. Oh, I got to say this. This is hard to say. Greek goat god Pan. Greek goat god. So the, the, the time, at that time, the, the, the city was actually known as Panaeus, and you can go to the ruins even today and see what's known as the Grotto of Pan. Here's a, here's a photo of the grotto or cave of Pan. It's the one there to the left of your screen. And, and here's the thing about this grotto. It, the, the worship of Pan that was conducted there was typically involved fertility rites, um, involved human sacrifice that was practiced right there at the mouth of the cave. And inscribed on the walls in Greek are the words Gate of Hades gate of Hades. So this was considered to be a gate to the underworld and to the gods that controlled fertility. So again, there was human sacrifice that was conducted right here at the mouth of this cave in the name of for personal fertility, for crop fertility, for all of that. That was more recent to Jesus' time. And then in the even more recent in the Roman era, the the town had been renamed from Panaeus to Caesarea Philippi, which why we have Jesus and the disciples walking towards there. It was named Caesarea Philippi by Philip, the patriarch, who's renaming the, the, the town in honor of himself and Augustus Caesar. Okay, so this means that the current namesake of this place is the embodiment of human power structures of their day. Okay, it's bringing together Philip and Caesar to be Caesarea Philippi. So you gotta understand there's a little bit of, uh, of ego, right? of power, of of human power systems to, to name, to rename a, an ancient city after yourself and another person. I think the modern day equivalent would be like renaming Las Vegas. Okay. Renaming Las Vegas to something like what? Obama-Bidenville, <laughs> trump Pentstown. right? It's taking two historically, like current leaders and renaming the town after them. Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip. So Caesarea Philippi, it's deeply has a deeply seated reputation for the worship of idols and for the ambition of human power. There were few places in the ancient world that carried more significance in these two arenas. Okay, this is religion and politics, church and state brought together right there. And it says Jesus and his disciples are approaching this city of Caesarea Philippi, this 25-mile walk, that Jesus pushes their understanding of him further by asking, who do people say that I am? So just remember that. I want you to hold on to that. That's the backdrop. They're walking. Caesarea Philippi is actually built into some cliffs. And so at some point along the journey, they would actually be able to see it in the distance as they were approaching. And as they're approaching this embodiment of human religion and politics, Jesus says, so let's resume the questioning. Who do people say that I am? To, To the disciples that he just asked, are you blind? Are are your hearts hardened? Do you not understand? So who do people say that I am? They gave him three answers. We saw those. Uh, A, B, and C It's like multiple choice. Said, well, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. uh, Some say one of the prophets. We actually already saw, Mark already narrated these answers as the popular thoughts about who Jesus might be uh, earlier in Mark chapter six. Um, I've given you references there on the slide that, that help explain the context of why people would have thought that Jesus might be one of these identities. Uh, and so if you want to look into that, there's the references for you. I'm not going to do that right now because Jesus doesn't stop to to answer those ideas. He doesn't stop and say, well, let's, let's talk about each one of those. He presses forward with a question and he says, what about you? He, he pushes them to name their conclusions about it. Mark 8, 29. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here's the thing. In the book of Mark, there's this kind of, there's two parts to the book of Mark, like part one and part two. The first part could be called secret Messiah and the second part could be called servant Messiah. Okay, those are the two parts of the book. And so we've been moving in this secret Messiah part all along, in which there's a there's this theme that's just threaded through the book of Mark of who then is this man? Oftentimes at the end of his teaching or at the end of his uh, ministry time, the people are left going, well, who then is this? Even the creation itself obeys him. Who is this? Who teaches with this kind of authority? Who, who can heal the eyes of the blind? Who is this? And every time somebody starts to get an inkling, Jesus goes, shh, because he's in control of his mission. And his mission is not going to be dictated by human expectations. And we can see that human expectations are not the same as Jesus. So he's in control of this. That's why you keep seeing him go, shh. And even now, they've made this amazing aha. And he goes, shh. He asks them, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up. Peter is often the one that speaks on behalf of the 12. You can trace this through Peter's life. He's often speaking and he's often articulating the things that that they're all saying. It's just that he's the only one that has the boldness to blurt it out. And so Jesus asks this question and Peter just kind of blurts out the thing that has been growing as a hope in the hearts and minds of the 12. And they say, he says, you're the Christ. He doesn't go with, option A, B, or C, he chooses D. He goes, you're the Christ. What does that mean? That's, that is a loaded word for a, a Jewish man, a Hebrew man to use when he says, you are the Christ. Okay, in, in our day, Jesus Christ, what is that? Is that his surname? Is that his last name? We're not sure, right? Because we don't use the word Christ a lot. For them, that, they had specific meaning. Christ was the equivalent of Messiah or anointed one. And, and it harkens back to all kinds of promises throughout the Hebrew scriptures, what, what we would call the Old Testament, about how God was going to one day rescue his creation and rescue his people. And it was going to be through a descendant of David who would rule forever. And so this title of Christ, it's a messianic title that, that wouldn't necessarily carry divine connotations. It doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is God but it means that he's the king sent by God who's coming to restore, to fix, right? So in Matthew's record of of Jesus' conversation, Matthew has the same conversation as they're making their way to Caesarea Philippi. Matthew has a, a little bit more of expanded conversation. And in that conversation, Jesus says, that's right, Peter. He affirms Peter. He says, you got it right. And you just didn't get it right because of human reasoning. The God, my father, actually revealed that to you. That was a divine revelation you just had. And so it's very affirming. And he says, Peter, on, on this confession, and all, all, if you look in your Bible, almost all translations label this section, Peter's confession. He says, on this confession, I will build my church. And here's the thing, Jesus is here to build not a physical temple. He makes it very clear throughout his ministry. He's not building another better temple. He's building a people who, who will themselves in, be indwelled by his very presence. The people will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. His people together, people individually, both. And he says, on this, on this confession of who I am, that's what I'm going to build the church on. So this is, a, this is an amazing moment. This is a set, that's the second touch. And the disciples, they've seen Jesus kind of fuzzy. They've been squinting, trying to figure out who he is, along with everybody else. And in this moment, their eyes are opened. It's like the second touch. And they see him clearly. And and Peter goes, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah. So here's the question, though. Do they see him totally clearly or just a little less fuzzy? What do you think? Clearly or a little less fuzzy? Are they no longer seeing him like a tree walking? Tim Keller says, if Jesus doesn't heal them or heal the blind man, they'll go around for the rest of their lives hugging trees and cutting down people. There's something there. No, there's gonna be more second touches. This, This is in fact a second touch moment for Peter and for the disciples but they're going to need another second touch and another and another. That is actually the trajectory of a Christian life is lifelong learning, a whole series of second touches. We're gonna to see a second touch in the next verse, the need for a second touch. We're gonna to see it in chapter eight, in chapter nine, and chapter 10. We're gonna see it at the crucifixion. We're gonna see it after the resurrection. We're gonna see it when they get uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and they head out to the streets in Acts chapter two. We're going to see it when Peter sent to Cornelius' house and he realizes that God's vision is bigger than Israel, that he actually really does want to reach the Gentiles. We're going to see it when Peter has that epiphany but then falls away from it and Paul has to rebuke Peter. There's a lot of rebuking going on. But here's the thing. This is the confession that they will build and spend the rest of their lives upon. This is the foundation of a new temple that Jesus is building, not made out of stones but out of people. And so, I just want to just kind of pause right there and talk about this thing that Pastor Brent, he said, you know, next Sunday we're going to have a baptism. We actually, we, typically we, we have a baptismal that's in our chapel, and historically, since we, since we had this building built or this, we've been doing our baptisms in there, but we recently purchased a portable baptism that we can have right in here because we want to include that in part of our Sunday morning. And so I just want to put that, that um, reference up there that, or that website that Pastor Brent talked about. Vineyardboys.org slash baptism, because I want to invite you. If you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, you have an opportunity to do that next Sunday through baptism. Here's what baptism means, among other things. And, and at that website, there's a, a PDF that you can download that, uh, that actually includes the primary scriptures about baptism, and you can read the different layers of meaning that it has. But here's one of the meanings. It's identifying with Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's why you go underwater and you come back because we're identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection as the foundation of your life moving forward. Jesus just said to Peter, Peter, this confession you've made that I am Lord, that's what I'm going to build my church on. That's what I'm going to build you on. That's what I'm going to build other believers on. It's a public confession that Jesus is the Lord of your life above all else. This is a public confession that Jesus is Lord above all else. It means giving yourself to God and allowing him to finish the good work he's begun, however many second touches you need. And here's what I would say. I can think about my own baptism and I recognize that I didn't fully, when, when I said yes to Jesus at my baptism I and was, I was a teenager, I was still seeing Jesus as a tree walking. He was very fuzzy in my eyes. Today, he's less fuzzy than he was then, but he's not entirely clear. There's so much more I have to learn. So it's not about, baptism isn't about the moment when you absolutely see clearly. It's when you see enough to say, Jesus is Lord, and I want him to be Lord of my life. I receive that. And in church, I think there's, a, there's a, this, this opportunity on Father's Day to be grafted into the family of God or Heavenly Father in a new way and say, Jesus is Lord, and I entrust myself to you. Will you give me every second touch that I need in order to become who you've made me to be in order to do in the world what you've called me to do. So there's the link for that. I encourage you to consider that. Um, for now, back to Mark, back to Peter and the 12, because they finally understood about Jesus. He, and now that they know who he is, he begins to teach them about his mission. And it doesn't sound anything like what they thought when, when he said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the king of, in the line of David. What Jesus begins to talk about isn't what they were expecting. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Okay, remember the backdrop. They're moving towards Caesarea Philippi. Again, it's the embodiment of human approaches to both religion and power. What Jesus is describing sounds nothing like what Peter thinks should happen when they get there or when they go south to Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about suffering, rejection, and death. I mean, Peter wants things to happen that involve establishing religious truth and taking power. So Jesus, so Peter pulls Jesus aside to correct him for talking like that in front of the enlisted men. He's like, Jesus, come on. He pulls Jesus aside, he's like, look. Um, I don't know what you're thinking right now. It's kind of got this kind of dark thing going on, this kind of like, you know, goth thing going on. You're talking about death and suffering and rejection. Like, um, that's not encouraging the guys. We need a better PR campaign than that, right? If you are the king, then let's talk about winning, Let's talk about being beloved by the crowds. Let's talk about consolidating power. Let's talk about conquering and subjugating our enemies. Let's conquer and subjugate them because there's always a them. In Peter's day it was occupying Rome, and all of, all of them would have liked to see Rome driven out just to, to, to see, give us back our freedom from Rome. That's what's in Peter's mind and heart. And so when Jesus begins talking all depressed-like about suffering and death and rejection, he's like, Jesus, come on. Let's talk about winning. Let's talk about, here, try this, Jesus. Make Israel great again. <laughs> we can brand it with the Jewish star, star of David. This is going to be awesome. And I say that, I deliberately chose that, not to be pointed or to be, not to, not to be anything other than to say, there, I, want, I want us to experience that there was a Jewish nationalism that was driving the way that they were interpreting Jesus and what they were expecting Jesus to do. It was a Jewish nationalism that was wh- wh- far smaller than what Jesus was going to do. Jesus was here to rescue all of creation. And what he didn't need was a people that were going to try and rule everyone else through power. So Jesus listens to Peter's rejection, of his ways of bringing God's rule on earth. And then he responds, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, so Jesus turns to look at the same people that Peter's looking at, kind of looks over his shoulder, and he says, loud enough that they can all hear, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you feel Peter's whiplash? I mean, one moment he's getting majorly affirmed by Jesus for being the one to finally speak out, to call out, to name who Jesus is. And he gets affirmed in front of all of his friends. And the next moment he's getting rebuked and told that his expectations of how Jesus should go about setting things right were not just wrong, but were satanically inspired. That's not a small thing. That's not a small rebuke that Peter just heard. Essentially that he would need more second touches to his spiritual blindness. Yes, you're seeing and you need a lot more spiritual touches. You're gonna need lots of second touches if you're gonna be helpful and embrace my mission. You know, when when Jesus rebukes Peter this way, it actually harkens back to the temptation in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted to take power and glory over mankind by avoiding the cross, by going around the cross, what did Jesus say to Satan in that day? He said, "Get behind me." And now he's saying the very same thing to one of his followers. The next few chapters contain a series of second touches for Jesus' followers. There's a pattern, and here's what we're going to we're going to see a pattern in chapter eight, chapter nine, and chapter ten. It keeps repeating. It's a repeating cycle. Each one it begins with Jesus preparing them for what's awaiting in Jerusalem. In each one of them, he says, "Look, when we get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen." And every time, even though he's speaking plainly, and Mark Mark makes it very clear, Jesus wasn't speaking cryptically, he was speaking plainly. But it goes over their heads because it's not what they want to hear. And so it follows by them digging into their worldview, their expectations, their intentions about his kingdom and about their place in it. And there's always this issue of human ego and pride. And what is their part? What do they want for themselves? And so in each time it prompts Jesus to teach the true nature of what it means to be his followers, his disciples. I just summarize them right here. We're going to telegraph it. We're going to go into these beginning next week and then over the next coming months. We're going to hit each one of these. But each one of these cycles ends with Jesus teaching about the true nature of discipleship. Chapter eight: discipleship is self-denial. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means a lifestyle of self-denial and self-sacrificing love like Jesus love. And chapter nine: discipleship is an inverted value system with personal achievement replaced with loving and serving others. For example, children who cannot reciprocate. The disciples are all caught up in, in who has, who's most important and who can have the most important positions of power in Jesus' cabinet when he's established. And Jesus pulls aside a, a helpless child and says, my kingdom is about welcoming and focusing on these. Those who can't do anything to give you back. The least, the powerless. Chapter, not, or chapter 10, discipleship is patterning ourselves after the king who would not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life for the sake of others. Here's the truth of all of these, all of these revelations. Here's the truth is the kingdom of God has a king. In the vineyard, we talk about, let's, let's, let's seek the kingdom. Let's pray for the kingdom to come. Let's, Jesus taught his disciples, pray that your kingdom would come, your will be done. The kingdom has a king. And that king calls every citizen of his kingdom to live like him, to emulate him, to be patterned after his likeness. If the disciples who spent every waking hour with Jesus for nearly two years need to hear this on repeat, how much more so do you think we need to hear the same thing? How much more so do you think we, as the church of 21st century, here globally need to say, oh Jesus, would you give us a second touch? We see you, but it's fuzzy. Would you touch our spiritual blindness that we might see you as you truly are and become more like you? I think this prompts some questions for us to sit with, especially as we immerse immerse ourselves in Jesus' loving correction and in his instruction. Here's a few questions just to consider. And I would ask you to write these down, or if you can't write them down, you can grab your phone and you can take a screenshot of this slide. I think these are some important questions for us to each one of us be asking, for us to be asking together. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who are we saying that he is, not just with our words, but what, who are we saying he is to our world, with our lives, with our words, with our values, and with our methods? Who are we saying he is to our world? What mindsets and expectations are we living from that Jesus would lovingly but firmly rebuke? Jesus rebuked Peter, not because he enjoyed being critical. He corrected him out of love. We see Jesus loves Peter so much. He's so gentle with Peter. When Peter falls and Jesus restores him in John chapter 21, it's so gentle. Jesus loves Peter. But this rebuke is because Peter is going to be entrusted with the mission, with carrying God's name, carrying the name of Jesus in the world. And the heart that Peter's wanting to live out of needs to be corrected. It needs to be rebuked. Last question, what are we doing as Jesus' followers? And in Jesus' name, that does not look like, the kind of, like his kind of sacrificial love. Let me close, close with a few quotes. Here's a few quotes. First of all, from writer Elijah Mandura. He says, many who call themselves Christians are completely ignorant I suspect willfully of the fact that the acid test of Christian faith is an imitation of Christ's self-sacrificing, all-embracing love commanded by Christ himself, 1 John 4. To put it the other way, there's, there's, there's this call to love Jesus. There's also a call to not hate, to not despise, to not disdain others. Lindsay has a quote on her computer. I see it sometimes when we're having meetings. And it's it's the equivalent, it's the opposite of this. It says, if you hate anyone because of your faith, you're doing it wrong. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If you hate anyone, people, groups, because of your faith, you're doing it wrong. I'll close with one more quote. This one's from Jesus himself. I'll preface this by saying, Here's what I believe. I believe this is a word to us, a word to me. If we claim to follow Jesus, but we don't aspire to live according to his kingdom, his ways, his humility, his kindness, his self-sacrificing love for his enemies, Jesus would say to us what he said earlier in the book of Mark. Mark chapter seven, verse six. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I believe all of us need to hear this. What exactly we need to take away from that probably changes from person to person. I know I need to hear this. This It's been my prayer this week. Jesus, would you touch me? Give me that second touch again. Show me the places where, where my expectations are formed by human thinking, not by yours. Show me those ways in which I'm trying to advance your kingdom in ways that distort your image. Would you give me a second touch? I don't wanna waste this opportunity. We're gonna be in, in these three cycles of Mark and we're gonna be in one of them next week. So I, I would challenge you, ask you, be in your devotions this week. Pastor Mike writes devotions for us. They've got a hard edge to them this week. They've they've got a hard edge, and I think it's appropriately so, because we need to be shocked. I encourage you to engage in devotions. Use those as a springboard to then pray through those passages and say, Jesus, what do you need to touch in me? Where, Where am I still seeing you fuzzy? I don't want to waste this opportunity to place ourselves before Jesus with our own Caesarea Philippi as our backdrop. I want to ask Jesus to touch our eyes again to heal our spiritual blindness, to transform our hearts. The worship team is gonna come and lead us in one last song. And, um, and this is a song that, um, actually, I'm gonna read the lyrics to you before we sing. This is a brand new song. Pastor Jesse just introduced this to me on Thursday. And this was just released on, um, uh, th- it was actually written by a, a vineyard worship leader in the UK, not in America, um, but released by Vineyard Worship. And I believe that, that this is a word for the church of the 21st century globally. I believe it's a word for the church in America, but it, it's global. And, you know, every now and then a worship song is written that the Spirit just breathes upon, that, you know, this is just a song deliberately given from the Holy Spirit to the church for that season to root into, to pray, to sing, to sing prayerfully and say, God, would you do this in our time and in our place? There's songs like that. I believe that this is a song that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's called, You Have Our Yes. Jesse's gonna sing it over us. And I'm gonna invite you to, to join him in that. We'll put the lyrics up on the screen, I think. But first, I just wanna read it. Just maybe close your eyes and listen to the words of this song our rights and our freedoms our flags and our kingdoms all of our idols must bow our walls and our weapons our worldly possessions all of our idols must bow you have our yes let our lives confess and say Jesus is Lord we'll take up the cross no matter the cost we say Jesus is Lord he is Lord our selfish ambition our power for power and position, all of our idols must bow. Our fearful reactions, our, our constant distractions, all of our idols must bow. Our joy is to hope in Jesus our Savior, to love those who hate us, embracing our neighbors, to lay down our lives for the poor and the needy, The cross is our call and our only allegiance. To Jesus, our Lord, to Jesus, our Lord, our holy commitment in body and spirit to honor you, Jesus and Lord. Our love and affection, our time and attention, Lord, you deserve it all. Just lower the lights a little bit. I want to invite you to respond as we sing this song. The vineyard we have a, a heritage of saying that worship is a response. The response doesn't look the same for every person. For some it may mean standing, for some it may mean dancing, for some it may mean kneeling, for some it may mean sitting. I just want to encourage you to respond. Some of you may want may feel yourselves wanting to stand. And raise your arms. Some of you may feel yourselves wanting to kneel. This is an appropriate song to kneel to. But don't just stay where you're.
1: All of our idols must bow And our fearful reactions And constant distractions All of our idols must bow And you have our yes Let our lives confess and say Lord we take up the cross no matter the cost we say Jesus is Lord we say Jesus is Lord our joy our joy is to walk beside Jesus, our Savior, to love those who hate us, embracing our neighbors, to lay down our lives for the sake of the needy. The cross is our call and our only allegiance to Jesus, our Lord. Oh, Jesus, our Lord, oh, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and you have our yes, let our lives confess and say, Jesus, is Lord we'll take up the cross no matter the cost we say Jesus is Lord we say Jesus is Lord and all holy commitment in body and spirit, to honor You, Jesus, Lord. Oh. Our love and affection, our time and attention, Lord, You deserve it all, Lord, You.
0: Holy Spirit, we we recognize that like your first century followers and disciples, that we too need a, a second touch from you. We need a whole series, a whole lifetime of second touches. Jesus, would you do that in us? Would you do that for your glory and for our joy that we would truly experience who it is that you are and what it is that you do and how it is that you go about doing it? Or would you fill our hearts with greater love for your world, for your creation that you came to redeem, that you came to lay down your life for? Would you fill us with that same self-sacrificing love for your glory, for the sake of others? Holy Spirit, we invite you this week And throughout these weeks, as we listen to you explain the nature of true discipleship, would you rebuke us? Would you correct us? Would you affirm what should be affirmed? Rebuke what needs correcting? Would you shape us and mold us? Would you send us and empower us? We ask for every manifestation of your indwelling presence that we would truly be your temple, your mobile temple, moving out into the world, carrying your presence and your name in ways that reflect you, not distort you. Come Holy Spirit. As we close today, I want to make a little bit of space for ministry, for prayer. Um, If you came this morning and there's things that you would like a brother or sister to, to, to join you in prayer for, you can just come up here to one of the front rows and I'll ask uh, pastors and prayer team members, would you just watch for people that are asking for, for prayer? Um, just come up here to one of the front rows. Apart from that, um, we have some exciting things happen today. We have a meet and greet out in auditorium too. We have a pancake breakfast to help uh, support CR where we can just be face to face and enjoy one another's company. So. Um, Go in the name of Jesus, be blessed, and go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.